Welcome to episode 10 of Sullivan Street Accounting Crows podcast, where today, on the anniversary of Recovering the Satellites, October 15th, we are going to do it, get into a deep dive, song ranking, etc., history behind what some critics and a lot of fans think is their best album, Recovering the Satellites. But first, let's talk to my co-host, Chris Miggs. Chris, good afternoon. How are you? Hey, I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm excited to uh, to talk about this record. It's an interesting. It's interesting to go back to this record all the way through, in part because the band tends to focus on certain songs. So there's there's some songs I hear very regularly. Other songs I don't hear as much, especially as someone who likes to like listen to live recordings. So it's kind of interesting, and it's uh, we'll get into it as we talk. But it's interesting to sort of compare those songs that are more commonly heard one of which is i think by this point the most played song ever live um versus some other songs that have been played you know two or three times so it's an interesting it's it's an interesting kind of an interesting as opposed to august right which is much more obviously there's some that get played more than others but pretty much all of that is a common part of the canon. So it's kind of a different vibe, I think, than that. So very excited to get to it and very excited to have uh, our guest with us today. Yes, we have three guests today to help us sort through Recovering the Satellites. First, we will say hello to a who someone who I think will be a regular in Sullivan Street, Counting Crews resident historian, Jeff Harkness. Jeff, good afternoon. Hello and <laughs> welcome, everyone. How's it going? Can you hear me? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, very I'll- excited to be here. Love this album. And it's going to be really fun to talk about. I think that if you're a big Counting Crows fan, there's at least some point at which Recovering the Satellites is your favorite album where you're like, this is the one, you know? I know for me, for a long time, I ranked it as my very favorite album by them. Um, so I'm excited to talk about it. It's been really fun to re-listen to it. And um, and and also to rank the songs was very fun, too. I can't wait to see what everybody came up with. Absolutely. And for our, our, for our other two guests today, uh, both new to the program, one of them, I'll first say hi to Zephyr. Now, Zephyr, I just met recently, maybe a month or so ago, outside of the YouTube theater and where I kind of hunted him down, where he looked like a hardcore <laughs> Counting Crows fan. And I was right. And uh, we really got along. So uh, I thought, hey, you might be a good guest on the show. And uh, glad to see you here. Uh, so, Zephyr, hello. Hello, Eric and Chris and Jeff and other Eric. <laughs> and other Eric. Uh, so let's, we'll get into the album in a bit. But but please tell us how uh, you became a big Counting Crows fan and what keeps you coming back. And as I mentioned in the pre-show, you are a few decades younger than us. <laughs> You're in your 20s, I have to say, which makes your story a little more interesting, I think, about how you became uh, a crow's head. Yeah, well, I'm actually not even as old as this album. <laughs> so I'm 20, 26. <laughs> so, but yeah, I mean... Oh, great. I'm out, I'm out of here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, don't, I don't know what it, what it is. I mean, there's, there's a couple bands for me that, you know, you just, we all have a couple bands that we just absolutely love everything about for me it's it's rush and counting crows and most people are just like what those are so different how could you like them but i i just do they're they're the best so with counting crows how did it actually yeah 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 so with counting crows being a uh a younger fan i would say um you know my parents always had the radio on in, in the car and counting crows was one of those bands that even if i didn't know the song when I heard Adam's voice, I knew like Mr. Jones and 
maybe Rain King, but I you hear Adam's voice and I would just go, that this is Counting Crows. I didn't even know the song. And I'd look at the radio and be like, yep, that's Counting Crows. And just, he had that voice that just drew me right in. And his voice was so captivating. And it was like he was whispering in in my ear or something. And everything he, he sings about is just so true and personal to him. But I think it also resonates with other people. And so there was something about that. And then, of course, just how great the band is and how great their songs are. But there was something about that genuine honesty that just drew me right into this band. And I would say my first introduction to them was probably Shrek 2 back in 2004, whenever that movie came out with Accidentally in Love. You know, that song is it's still one of my favorite Counting Crows songs because it's it's kind of different for them. It's extremely positive and upbeat, where some of their songs are not. (laughs) Um, but that I think that's what always drew me to them. And then it wasn't till about 2014, which was about some the Somewhere Under Wonderland era, that I, I really dove in when I started. When I would have been uh, my senior year of high school was that year, and I started to dive into them throughout the next couple of years, and you know went down the rabbit hole, so to speak. But it started with Shrek Two because you know I was great a young kid when that movie came out. The- yeah. I I'd always heard that that's that that might that some fans did get you know get into them because of that song and went down the rabbit hole. But you're the first person I actually met because <laughs> uh, due to that. Um, we'll move on just in the sake of time. We'll no, I'll say, after, Eric, though, that, it's interesting yeah, please, though please. that because um, I think we we've all talked about sort of our our paths with the band, and I do think there is something about reaching a certain point in your life where these songs start to make sense. So let like, yes. you know, like I feel like I got became a bigger fan when I was 18, and Eric when. He, you know, it's like it's just right. different times when we turned eighteen or nineteen or twenty. You know what I mean? So, um, and there is something to that, and it's interesting to hear that as a as a theme. Just out of curiosity, which um, al- do you know which album you purchased first? I think it was Films About Ghosts because I that's usually what I do when okay. I get into a band. I'm like, all right, I got to check out the greatest hits. Okay, but, okay, then after that, I guess which of the non greatest hits album do you know? Mm. It was either the Heineken Music Hall Amsterdam show or Somewhere Under Wonderland. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's so it interesting to me, right? Of like having some that to have listened maybe to Somewhere Under Wonderland. I mean, uh, ha- owning that first before August. So yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. We'll go to our, yeah. We'll go to our fifth fifth uh, uh, person on the podcast today, Eric Redding, or I guess I'll maybe I'll call you Florida Eric. Uh, so, um, Florida, Eric, what, uh, what, what got you into the crows? What keeps you coming back? Uh, basically, uh, I've always been a big music person. My, I grew up listening to music. My dad had a record, one of those old school record players and big towers back in the eighties, whatever. And, you know, and I, I started getting into, it was right at the end of like the eighties, early nineties when, um, rock was dying out, like the hair bands. And I was into Mr. Big and extreme. And my dad, I played a little, with my dad on the way to, to, he dropped me off at school. He's like, Hey, you like this rock? Check out the Greeks and check out, you know, Beatles, uh, rubber soul. And, Jimmy's already experienced and and uh, and stuff like that, and I would listen to that just hours listening. So I've always been a big music fan, and as the '90s crept in, you know, into the always as we crept into the '90s, um, I liked the heavier bands, some like Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains. I love the grunge scene. And all of a sudden, I'm driving one day, and I, I hear I think it was Mr. Jones down here in South Florida came out first. I think I'm like, oh my god, listen to him emote and Adam's voice and the lyrics just really really touched me and here's a guy that him and i have a lot in common you know i too dated dated uh courtney cox and jennifer aniston i know how it feels you know? <laughs> but uh, no no seriously I, I i could just identify with them with the mental health struggles sometimes there were relationship struggles and like i said the voice and the lyrics and 
you know, here's being a music fan, here's a band that sounds like to me, Van Morrison, R.E.M., uh, the band and, uh, you know, all mixed into one. I'm like, man, that's just a unique sound from, you know, Alice in Change or Pearl Jam that I was used to. And I just I stuck with them ever since. And I grabbed August was my first album, grabbed August. And ever since then, I just went in order and I've just been I've been sticking with them ever since. Just Eric and I talked uh, a while back, you know, before I went on the pod and just the, the lyrics and, and the depth that it just, it just grabbed a hold of me unlike any other band. And I'm just stuck with them. And I think, I think the world of them. All right. Great. F- fantastic. Um, I do want to get into the history. I, 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 yeah, let me, I also want to mention uh, or, or ask people when did they buy, maybe I'll ask though, Jeff to, uh, first uh talk a little bit about the unique recording of, of recovering the satellites and of course being the sophomore you know effort and i guess that's what a lot of the album is about of of trying to uh record after your first album was such a major hit you know was it seven million in the u.s i think august sold you know one of the most recognizable lead singers at that time and um yeah and then all of a sudden they they try to do it again so uh Jeff, your your take or some interesting his history notes, sure. um, which by the way you can find some of these notes in Rain King, the life and music of Adam Duritz <laughs> and Cannon Crows, available on Amazon. Which by the way, Kindle, hardcover, and paperback, right? Oh, and audiobook <laughs> should be out by the end of the month. So look okay. for that. It's uh, six hours of me talking. My my wife is very excited. So um, <laughs> she she calls it Tuesday. So um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah. I mean, to me, this is one of their most interesting albums. The story of this album is insane. You could make a documentary about it. In fact, I think that's exactly what they're doing um, with HBO. So that's that's very exciting, and I can see why. You know, this album, I mean, there, you know, first of all, you've got the second album. I'm a big fan of second albums in general. I always love it when a band has a really interesting debut and then they have to follow it with something. And, you know, that that often, it, you know, produces a real confidence in the group that results in, you know, in a lot of touring. Uh, in this case, that results in a very strong second album. You know, we could we could talk about second albums, you know, for a long time. But I think in this case, you know, Adam, you know, one, one thing is that a lot of the, some of the songs were really road tested in advance. So you have songs like mm. Children in Bloom, which was around almost from the very beginning of the August mm-hmm. tour. They were playing that. Good Night Elizabeth yeah. would became mm-hmm. a staple of that tour as well, you know, pretty early on. And then you even had stuff like Have You Seen Me Lately, Daylight Fading, mm-hmm. Another Horse Dreamer's Blues being played you know, early, you know, prior, long before the album was released. So they had about, you know, half the album or even more than that written before they went into the studio. Um, They also had, you know, sort of, you know, the support of, of the record label to do something, you know, insane. And, and in some ways, this is Adam's most ambitious record. He decided to write the ultimate sort of treatise on celebrity and fame it's well-worn material, but he decided to go for it. And he conceived a, a double album that would be con- you know, comprised of two sides, and each side was going to have uh, a three- or four-song little suite. So you have these four suites. All of this went away uh, after the album was released. But it's very interesting because this is really his concept, and he was very wedded to this concept. He talked a lot about it in the early interviews. Uh, surrounding the release of the album. So he had this double concept. The first side was going to be about what it was like to experience overnight celebrity from multiple angles, 
And side two was going to be about the sort of um, learning to deal with that and the recovering from that. And also, as he described it, the possibilities that stem from that. So he had this, you know, grand concept and um, they recorded again in the house, but this time they had a huge budget and um, they rented a, a 13,000 square foot mansion called, I'm going to say Artemisia is the pronunciation that, that's on a video on their website. It could be Art, Artemisia as, a, as an artist and, and it's pronounced differently, but the video on their site says Artemisia, so we'll go with that. But this giant house and they wanted to record there. Adam this time did not live in the house because he lived in LA and Matt Malley did not live in the house either. So some differences there. But they got Gil Norton to produce. Gil Norton was the producer um, most known for the Pixies and a very different sound. You know, the record company, everybody wanted them to do, you know, September and everything after. Basically just re regurgitating the, the first album. They wanted T-Bone Burnett to produce it again. Let's let's bring in the same team and recreate that magic, you know, and get the dollars rolling in. But Adam was very steadfast in, in refusing um, to use, use T-Bone Burnett again. And I think that was a great artistic decision, one of the early ones. And, and uh, he really fought to bring this vision to life. So the mansion itself, I mean, I'll be very interested to see if they get into this in the documentary, but they had to do all this crazy stuff to prepare the mansion. They had to soundproof it because there's all these, you know, mansions next door and, you know, rich people. They had to, um, they couldn't, you couldn't touch any of the walls. And so they had to erect this whole series of tents so that you couldn't touch the walls. Um, all, all of these rules and restrictions, they brought in a whole team to measure the acoustics and they built all of these, had all these custom things built to, you know, put the amplifier boxes and all this crazy stuff. So really, I mean, they went crazy spending. And also to, instead of just renting a bunch of equipment for months and months, they decided let's just buy it. You know, it's cheaper to just buy it. So they're <laughs> buying like $10,000 microphones. And really, I mean, the Gil Norton said he'd never seen so much money spent on an album and said, still to this day, it's the most extravagant album he's ever seen made. And he's done a lot of, you know, big time albums since then. <laughs> yeah. So this was a big grand concept. Adam was swinging for the fences with this. And I love it when an artist does that and says, I'm just going to go for it and try to make an absolute masterpiece and, uh, and go for it. And so that was kind of how they entered things at the, you know, at the same time, of course, he had moved to LA because his life had become untenable as, as this uh, celebrity star, you know, back in Berkeley. So it mm. was, it was a whole new thing. And I think an exciting time for the band to be, this young, you know, sort of fresh, hot band that everybody was looking at and waiting to hear what they were going to do next. And, you know, here they come with with, uh, you know, this album. So that that's kind of how it started. Hopefully, hopefully that'll get us get us uh, launched, as it were. No, no that was great. Thank yeah. you. Um, a, a double platinum, I think it went. So their second highest selling, uh, I think, the, uh, like I said, in the U.S., the original $7 million. Um, it's worth saying that officially this was the time that they got a new drummer and uh, and a new guitar player. And that obviously changed the sound of, of the Crows, right? And it's something that Adam has subsequently said that he always wanted a lead rocking guitar player. They just didn't have one on the first album uh, because I know some people, you know, maybe want to go back to that more, I guess, folksy or or less hard sound on the first album. Mm -hmm. um, but, but interesting though, right, that those, they're new from an album perspective, but both of them had been playing with the band. I mean, yeah. Dan yes. Vickery joins That's basically true. right at the beginning of the right. August tour. 
And then um, Ben Mize had joined, it's like May of 94, where he joins and, and replaces Steve. No, it was, maybe it's August. May or August. Yeah, one of, it, was, it, it was late, like, yeah, August, September, I think. Yeah. I think the last shows were September with Bowman. Did Steve finish the uh, tour, the August tour? No. no. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so the last three or four months of the tour are Ben. So he'd played with, basically just that he'd played with them already and been, I guess, playing at least some of the material. Okay. Um, Oh, it is the way you the tour. Yeah, I go. Oh. <laughs> I don't think they got along at that point. Yeah, they didn't get along. If, if, yeah, right away. Um, I guess it's worth mentioning before we do- dive into the songs. I do want maybe very briefly to talk about if you remember when you bought the whole album, assuming that all of you have. Um, and did it mean anything to you? I guess I'll just start by saying, I actually. Th- you know, in my recollection, it came out in summer 96, so it shows you what I knew. But I think that's because I worked at, uh, I think I said this before, I worked at Circus City at the time, which is kind of like Best Buy, but it's out of business. <laughs> but then I rem- I worked there in the summer of 96 before moving to New York City in September. And I guess I thought I bought the album there, but in, in retrospect, I guess what it was is they just had the promotional flats everywhere. Mm. So hyping me up about it. Um, uh, so I I forget, though, if I went back and bought it because I New York's not too far from where I grew up or if I bought it in New York. But I remember I bought it pretty quickly. It wasn't maybe the day it came out, but if it wasn't probably maybe two weeks after. I just remember loving it, but it was very different. I You know, in my memory, too. I think they, which is weird because it's not the advent of the internet, but the internet was kind of just becoming the internet then, is I want to say they launched CountingCrews.com like to coincide with the release of Recovering the Satellites. Because I kind of remember very early after buying the album, down because this was a big deal at the time, like they had photos on the website. And I can download those photos of, of Charlie playing the harmonica and put it as my wallpaper. Um, seven you know, hours on, on, seven hours to download the <laughs> yeah exactly there is actually so. i think they also had like maybe the early like videos because they they had they certainly yes. had like a lot of footage which is by the way it's interesting if the house looks very cool like you can see some of the house in the videos and i just remember it, it really does you, you do get the impression of like they are recording in a mansion <laughs> Like oh, yeah. I can, you can, I can see it like in my mind's eye, just the vibe of like, yeah, they're in a very, very nice house. So anyway, I don't have much to say, except that like you yeah. said, it's, it's definitely a more, I uh, will talk about it. It's definitely a more complicated album. It's definitely mm. than August, right? It's definitely something that what songs you like will probably change over time. Some songs take more longer to grow on you where um, I guess I, you know, maybe compared to August, uh, but I'll go, I'll we'll just go in order. Chris, I'll go to you about your memories of buying the album. So it's funny because you asked that first album question. I'm this is definitely the first Crows album I owned because oh, okay. I did not own August when it came. I went back and bought it just because I was young and just hadn't I don't know whatever for every reason hadn't acquired that one. I am pretty positive I got this one for Christmas in 1996, um, based on the back of really you know a long December just being really into that song, um, and definitely listened to it again. Didn't. I don't know how deeply I dove into it in a lot of ways, but this was definitely my first. Um, yeah, it that was uh, a, a lovely, a lovely Christmas present, and I'm sure I, I might still have that CD somewhere. I'm not sure. I got rid of most of my CDs at a certain point, um, but yeah, that was that was number I, one. 
And I actually, to be honest, I actually think that this might have been my first Crow CD because the August at the time I only had on tape. <laughs> I think I later went back <laughs> and bought it on CD. Uh, Jeff, I'll go to you. What about you? So I also, I got it when it came out. And, you know, interestingly, this, I was a co- college, writing for the college newspaper at the time. I was like a baby music journalist. And I think this was the first CD I ever reviewed in print. Um, it was one of the first two. The other one was Pearl Jam, that uh, uh, oh, sometimes album, the album was sometimes on it. No code. Um, and so, you know, my initial impression, I loved August, huge fan of, of August. And my initial impression of this album, I was like, mm, I, I wasn't, I was like, not, I, I didn't get it or something. I didn't dislike it, but I wasn't like, oh yeah, this is, this is genius. I was sort of like, mm, it, it, I didn't love it. But then a few months later, I was working in this coffee shop and somebody put on August and everything after. And I was like, oh, my God, I like remembered how much I love this band. And then it made me want to go play this album, which I still had the CD. And I was like and then I was like, oh, my God, this album's so good. Then I like kind of realized how great it was. Um, so this album then grew on me and really became for a long time my very favorite Counting Crows album. And, you know, so by the time Desert Life came out, I was a hardcore fan and really into it and like super looking forward to that release. And I think it was this album that really, really made me a Counting Crows fan like forever because I still think it's uh, I don't know if it's my favorite album today, but it's, you know, it's a 10 out of 10 album for sure. Zephyr, what about yourself? So this album, I think it was probably in the middle of the road where I discovered, because when I became a fan, you know, Somewhere Under Wonderland had just just come out. So to my, I remember um, I was in college working at McDonald's at the time, and I used to be the closer, and I would take my, I had a big, like, speaker, like a, like a, almost like a small PA speaker, maybe like this big. And I would bring it there and Bluetooth my phone in and just drive everyone nuts. And once I started to really get into the Counting Crows, I was blasting all their bootlegs while we were closing the grill at like two in the morning. And I remember I was like, okay, I was going through the discography. I haven't gotten to satellites yet. Let's put that one on. And I remember putting that one on and just from Catapult, I remember just turning it up and then what's Angels of the Silence is next, turning it up and just turning it up and up as the album went on and just like, this is amazing, because I had only heard what was on films about ghosts at the time, which is, you know, two or three songs off Recovering the Satellites, I think. So it was it was very different than their other albums. And it's I think it still is. But um, it just grabbed me right away because Adam's voice and the sincerity was there, just like August and the other albums. But man, what what a rock and roll record. I mean, what musicianship. I mean, just, you know, adding Dan on guitar and just the compositions and the guitar tones and just it it just grabbed me right away and i was like this it it really solidified my entrance as a as a hardcore fan absolutely and you brought up something to this day i still get annoyed about some people that only know maybe the crows from their singles almost don't consider them a rock yeah. album well they don't rock they're kind of a little folksy and the, with the with the piano and i'm like oh geez their second album could show you how much oh, they yeah. rock uh eric uh oh, yeah please chris you had something well, to though, real quick but part of that is though when i'm thinking about my experience with that record a long december is the big single from that record and exactly it very different than a lot of the rest mm-hmm. of the record I think that's one of the reasons why it took me a while with the record was that what I loved was a long December and not maybe so much the first time around 
catapult or you know but anyway no that's Eric. true uh florida eric yeah your experience with uh recovering the satellites the album yeah like, like i said before i was a fan from the jump and I, I was always just a music fan in general so one time i remember once i went to specs music down here and no longer there but but of the 90s it was a, a big record store in town and i was looking for something else and i think i remember driving up and seeing a sign in the window and obviously marketing wasn't big online or anything back then but sign the window counting crews new album covering the satellites get, you know get it here or whatever like oh my god i run in the store and i, I just purchased it and and I have a, it's complicated status with this album. I told Eric a couple weeks ago when we uh, did the little meeting pod at, I understand why they wanted to make this album a little bit different from the first one. And I'm glad Adam told the label to stick it. But out of the first three, it's probably my least favorite out of the three. But with hmm. with Counting Crows, I'm going to keep it G-rated. It's like pizza. It's like, even when it's you know not your favorite, it's still good. So, you know, the, the, the Crows' least favorite out of the three is better than any other band. So, so I, you know, that's where I stand with it. But I, I love it. I'm ready to get, get uh, start talking about it. All right, great. Well, that being said, let's go right into the sing. I, I do want to say, because last time I mentioned this as we talked about the songs, but I think it's worth mentioning as we're going to rank the songs, what were the official singles? And they actually had four official singles. Uh, Angels of the Silences was actually the first single, which was rocking. Um, and officially, it's funny, like, charted pretty high. Uh, the, the U.S. alt-rock number three and U.S. mainstream rock number four where Long December did not chart as high on the rock charts, mm. number five on the alt and number nine on the mainstream. Now, of course, like staying power and video plays Long December, I'm sure, uh, was a lot higher. Neither of them, I guess, charted on the on the top 40. I don't think they've ever, since uh, until Hanging Around, actually had a top, mm. real top 40. Uh, Daylight Fading was an official single. I remember hearing that on the radio a couple of times in New yeah. York City. Uh, charted in the top 30 uh, on the rock charts. And what this I don't remember as much, but I kind of vaguely remember. Uh, Have you seen me lately? Also, was a single top forty on the rock charts in the U.S. But you know, I didn't. And and the video they didn't really play at all. Uh, Daily fading. I remember seeing the video a couple times, either on VH1 or whatever. Uh, so those are their four official singles, and we'll see how they uh, they go when we go through our rankings, which I guess we'll start right now. Um, here we go. 14 songs on recovering the satellites. We all put in our votes. No one knows each other. Lower scores are the, are the better. Um, I kind of found that there were five tiers of songs. The third tier was kind of just one song by itself, but, but other than that, there were, there were four other tiers. So the three at the bottom, uh, let's start with number 14. So number 14, all of us had it in our kind of bottom five, which would be counting crows. Uh, I'm not sleeping. Number 14. Uh, anybody have some thoughts they want to share about uh, well, I'm not sleeping, why they might have put it low? No one, actually, ironically, no one put it at their 14th, but we all had it in our bottom five or so. So, Yeah, well, sorry, I, I'll had this, yeah, I, at the top of my bottom five. Um, <laughs> I really, so what's really cool about this song is the string arrangement, mm. right? It's an incredibly yes. interesting string arrangement. And that's actually one of the things I think is interesting. I found made this record very hard to rank was that there's kind of cool bits in every song. So even a song that I maybe didn't connect to, like this song, I, I don't feel particularly strongly about in a lot of ways. I don't really connect to it. But that, that string arrangement, if you've got headphones on, is really, really cool. I think it's uh, it's like Paul Buckmaster, right? He's done, he's done a, a crazy amount of string arrangements for records. Um, I think some of them, like McCartney Records and Elton John. and So it's a really cool song, but I also... Um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I, I also did think of this uh, song as maybe a rejoinder to Hanging Around um, B- 
because if you get to stay up very, very late, at some point, that becomes not cool, and it becomes insomnia. Mm. Um, right. And then you write sad songs about it as opposed to yearning songs about getting to stay up late. Yeah, and I, and I guess I kind of thought this, but but it didn't really, until you were speaking, it didn't really hit me. I kind of saw this as either, I guess, a precursor to actually all of Saturday Night, Sunday Mornings. Because I mm. think this is the one song on here mm. that shows maybe his mental illness more than anything else. Um, kind of like a descent into madness, if you were, uh, if, if you will. Um, yeah, and I, exactly. I also love the strings. That was That's my favorite part. Um, and then they had that, you know, and of course, a lot of it's a love uh, part two. Uh, but um, yeah, is that for you, Jeff or uh, Eric? Any thoughts? Yeah, this was my twelfth. I, I think I had it twelfth on the list. Yeah, I mean, the strings are phenomenal in this song. I've actually grown to like it more. I remember the first listen, I was like, "Ooh, I don't like this." But then the last year, I was like, "You know, this is actually a pretty cool song. Like the dynamics are quite amazing." And I love the Dan's like. I think it's Dan. His like swells he's doing at the verses and the big, big kind of guitar solo. And then the very end where it goes up, 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 up. And I remember hearing a story of how it was recorded where it was like four in the morning or something. And Adam woke up the engineer and he's like, I got it. I got it. And they go down to record it. And he's like jumping up and down that you can hear him like jumping up and down at like one point in the, in the chorus halfway through the song. And it's, it's a really good arrangement, the whole song. And so I think that's grown on me more over the years. Um, and it's one of those things where there's not a bad song on this album, but there's so many just amazing songs. And I think that's the only reason why I put it at 12 and not any higher. But it's it has grown on me over the years, for sure. Jeff, your take? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I, I placed it at the lower end, too. But, you know, this is an album where, you know, you're kind of splitting hairs because it's got a lot, you know, every song's pretty good. I think that, you know, here you have that theme of insomnia really coming to the fore, which we'll see again in songs like, you know, um, Goodnight L.A. Um, so really talking about insomnia, but also this it's at a key point in the album. You know, it's the fourth song on the album. And, you know, this is that that part of the album where he's talking about, you know, the the crisis of fame. And and there's a double meaning here. So he's not sleeping you know, it's really about insomnia, but it's also about, and he, he mentions who we think Jennifer Aniston in there, but it's also about something's like woken up in him that had been sleeping all these years. And, um, you know, he's got this new life now and there's something he can't turn off anymore. So it's a really key sort of, in terms of the theme of the album, it's a key lyrically and a key moment in the album. I also want to mention, in addition to the strings, Adam's vocal performance at the end of this song is pretty mm. incredible. And I mean, this is an album where he really, I mean, as much as everyone praises his singing on the first album, I really think his, his singing on this album is just unbelievable. Yeah. And on a song like this, he's showing it too. I mean, um, what he does at the end of this song is, is something that, you know, is pretty, pretty incredible. So even though this didn't rank super highly on my list, um, I still really like the song a lot. Eric, any, uh, final thoughts on I'm not sleeping. Uh, I do too. I agree with pretty much everything you guys said. I think with Chris, uh, I think he said it had it at 10, the top of his bottom five. I did too. And, and I do too, like the string arrangements. I also like the fact that, you know, it kind of goes along with the theme of, you know, I'm a star and now I got to bear the, you know, uh, 
you know, this cross the bear, you know, you want me to play all these shows. You want me to do all these interviews. You want me to rock Messiah. But I, I don't know if I want that. I wanted that. I don't know if I do anymore. So, mm. you know, it keeps them up at night, which is what the song was about. So, uh, like I said, I really love it. It's not that it's low and it, cause it's bad or anything's wrong with it, but it's just, you know, satellites have such great songs that I had to put it somewhere. So. Right. Right. All right. Thank you. All right. So here we go. Number 13. Now this is a song that probably would have ended up in last uh, place if it wasn't for me. I ranked it in the top 10. Nobody else did, which would be the shortest song, which would be the swan song, the final song, Walkaways, written, I think, by Dan, interestingly enough, which kind of surprised me. It sounds like it would be, I don't know, I guess it would have been someone else, but I think Dan and Adam wrote that. Um, I love Walkaways. I don't know. It's short, sweet, makes you want more. Um, it, it's kind of, an ex- I don't really have an excuse of why it's so high for me because it's such a simple song compared to everything else but i do i just think it's a i don't know it is it's a great goodbye song and he's kind of i think he it almost feels like it's like a fake short it's not like a one minute song right but it almost seems like it's going to be a real song and then he's like you know what sometimes you just have to walk away and i am goodbye. (laughs) yeah and it makes you want more yeah i'm with you again i had this uh, you know again i think just below i'm not sleeping uh, so I guess that would be eleventh. Um, I I also really I again I was kind of surprised it ranked so low. It just kind of didn't. I was a little surprised that it didn't bump anything else, but it just kind of didn't when I was doing the rankings. I've always loved this song as a as a uh, concert closer, mm-hmm. which they've used it a, a lot, certainly a ton on the recovering the satellites tour. They then went back to it like 2008 2000 yeah 2008 they use this as a, a lot as a closer and i think it's kind of a delightful like little like coda on the mm. end um and uh i i think they should i think they should bring that out of the for the rotation not to say it should be the one every time but yeah, it's a good it's a good way to end the show absolutely uh yeah. zephyr you uh, is that for your take on Walkaways? Yeah, it's a great song. I actually did a cover of it on my YouTube channel. I'm a guitar player myself. I play in a couple of bands. And so I did a little cover of this song and I played it at college for a little ensemble performance once. It's oh, it's at, a, at the at the end yeah, at the end of the show, please plug your yes. YouTube or uh, or I'll put it or I'll put it in the description. Yeah, for, so, for yeah. sure. Yeah, it's I mean it's such a beautiful song. I mean it's um it's short and I think I remember because I know they played it obviously on the Satellites tour. There's a version of them in Cape Town, South Africa, on the I think it was right before the Desert Life tour. I don't think the album had come out yet. And then, like mm. Chris mentioned, in '08 they kind of resurrected it a bit. And I think Adam had said at one point when they were writing it, like was talking to Dan, he's like, "Should it be any longer?" And they're just like, "No, I think it's perfect just the way it is." And it's one of those things where I personally just think that song is just absolutely perfect the way it is. And they feature it in the VH1 recording of recovering the satellites which i'm sure they'll bring back when the, the hbo comes out they show them recording it and it's just dan and adam down in like the basement of that big house and like dan's kind of got like a iso booth or whatever because he's recording guitar and then adam's singing the vocals and it's really cool to see they probably did that in just a couple of takes like at the same time so it's just it's just a beautiful song great way to close the yeah. album great way to close a concert i'd love for them to like alternate that with holiday in spain or something at the end of concerts because i think the diehard fans would would really go nuts i know i would (laughs) i i agree jeff your take yeah it is i agree it's such a perfect closer to this album this is a really well sequenced album and so like the opening with catapult and closing with this song you couldn't put this song anywhere else other than at the end of the album and i love it for that reason um 
it also, in some ways, it reminds me a little bit of um, Her Majesty, which is the, uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, it's the last song on Abbey Road. But the little, it's very short song. And, and again, this song's just over, clocks in at just over one minute. And a lot going on, but it's, it's um, yeah, I think it's a little gem. It's one of the, the, the three to four songs that's very overtly about Courtney Cox as well. Mm. So um, <laughs> the, the fourth suite of the album, um, which is Monkey, Mercury, Long December, mm. and Walk Aways, uh, three of those four songs are specifically about Courtney Cox, including this one. And so um, in, in, you know, uh, the the super geeks would get into like which of the four sweets is your favorite you know um, and so this is an it yeah right this is this is part of that courtney cox suite for those of you uh you know keeping track at home and and i i like it for that reason too it is it is a, a real gem for sure i love it and um although it didn't rank highly i think it's a great closer for the album absolutely eric any thoughts I agree as well. I, I think it's a gem. I, the only reason I didn't rank it higher, in fact, is because it's only a minute, you know, and you guys like it. But me, I was like, no, I want more. I, I was into it. I think it's fantastic. And, and I would have loved a three minute, you know, whole song version of it. But that's the only reason I ranked it low. Not that it was bad. It's just I wanted more. But my, my only my funny, I'll try not to give too many personal stories, but I do have an interesting I, I do like kind of random things for especially songs that are not like really well known. But I I was like in my traveling mode and mood at the time and I was backpacking and let's just say at the time crashed a couple nights at some local girls or women's young woman, maybe, I don't know, 20, 21, maybe uh, at the time for a couple nights. And then things weren't going, not that they were bad, but they just weren't as good as I thought and kind of were becoming a little bit awkward. And I think there was some, uh, you know, in my opinion, that she wasn't being open to some stuff and actually liked me more. And it's funny, I kind of left a day early. And it wasn't like I left and stormed out, like she knew I was leaving and this. But I actually, I don't know what, what got a hold of me. I actually left the lyrics of this, maybe somewhat passive aggressively, as I <laughs> left. But what's interesting is not that I did that. But when she, when we wrote later on email, or maybe she did it when, oh, you know what? It was actually a uh, uh, snail mail. She actually said it made a big difference and that she did realize because I left these lyrics, she realized she was being a little immature and vowed to be more mature when it came to like men and dating and stuff. Um, so who knows, right? Adam's, uh, you know, Adam's power. He's, he's so. a poet. He's changing lives. That's interesting, exactly. though. I'm not sure I've ever. I'm sure I've, I know I've left some notes with song lyrics in my life. I'm not sure if I've ever used a crow song in that way. Um, but that is, uh, and I don't works, know if right? I ever, just, and I don't know if I ever did more than one line. I mean, maybe on somebody, even a friend's, I might have put one line just to be funny or or cute. But that's the first time I ever did something like that. So anyway, and speaking of women that are kind of hot cold, we will go to our next one, which is Mercury. If you haven't guessed, now I'm sorry, uh, uh, Chris. I say this because you hinted in an earlier podcast that you love this song. And then I, when I placed it last on my list, I was like, geez, Chris might break up with me as a podcast <laughs> co-host. Um, so two, two of you, I'll say Chris and Jeff, both had it, had it as a top 10 song. Uh, the rest uh, had it on the lower group. Uh, but we can talk about Mercury. I just, I always thought it was a fine song. It's definitely not a dislike. But even from Listen 1, and I think to now... I know a lot of Chris fans love it. And don't they have they had a B-side with like a 13-minute version or something? I, I don't know that I own. But uh, that yeah, is, Chris, I'll go to you. 
And you know, I'll just say that is I I have this one sixth, and w- this is one of the songs on the record that I I struggled with most, in part because I think the album version is a is a good song. It's an interesting song. I was again I have it in the top half of the record. I think it's it's a really effective uh, tune. Um, the live versions with the love and addiction stuff in the middle, and just there's a lot of really really cool stuff in there and that and and that really brings the song out right i think there's um the song is kind of short and i think is a little um ambiguous in certain ways and that the live version it's it really pulls a lot of that stuff to the forefront in a way that i think is um really beautiful i have gotten to see them it's interesting i've only gotten to see them play it like two or three times the first time i ever got to see them play it i was very, very excited. And I was with a friend of mine who was like a Crows fan, but not like a super huge Crows fan. Um, this is the Wellmont Theater in 2008. And Adam goes into an alt in the middle that's not the original, the, the, the main one that they played a lot. Um, and it was basically like, uh, stick a needle in your arm and it feels like love. And my friend just looked at me like, this is the one you like? And I was like, yes, I, I swear it's not really, it's, it's hard to explain. Let me, uh, let me go home and burn you a CD with eight versions of this. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like the song and it's, it's, it's great, but yeah, not, not at the very top, but very, very cool. And if you, if you haven't listened to a version with love and addiction in the middle, you should. Zephyr, your uh, take on. Mercury. Yeah, I've, I've actually put it at the bottom and, Honestly, I think it is better live. There's a there's a version from it's on Nugs. It's the from Cape Town where on that tour is when Emmy joined the band, and I think he's playing lap steel. And mm. oh, that version is so cool. And Adam starts with the stick and needle, and it talks about the, what the song is about. That girls that are so a, a, addicted to to guys that are just so like toxic. These toxic relationships, and they keep coming back and stuff. So he kind of explains what the songs about but it, it, it the song just kicks in with with Emmy on that lap steel and and then again I think they played it some more on some other tours or some versions on Nugs but I think it's like one of those things where you're it just brings the song out more on the album it's like yeah it's it's good it's cool it's different you know the way it starts I think um Ben is playing like a bass drum and 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 Dave has like a resonator guitar or whatever but the live version is just it just like that's what got me into this song. So, Jeff, will go to you. And before, I, am, am I wrong by saying that this is? I don't know. At the at the time, the most bluesy of the songs. Is that accurate at all? Did, did Jeff, do you take on that or no? That's yeah, I mean, I guess I, I think the the steel guitar on a slide guitar makes it gives it that sort of tenor. Yeah, I love it. I had it as number seven and. You know, I probably could have ranked this even higher than that. I this is one of my, I just love this song a lot. I think um, one is that there's really nothing else on the album like it, other than it's sort of like this is the song that Walkaways once wanted to be and and wasn't. <laughs> um, you know, because in some ways they're they have those two to me seem very much like companion pieces, but this to me is a much more successful. Uh, sort of attempt at, at what they were doing um, here. You have like a, something that's very experimental in some ways. It's it's a step away from what they normally do. And it, it reminds me as, as a kind of a precursor to songs like Le Ballet d'Or, which I think is also mm-hmm. a really cool song. It's got that say, maybe it's that drum that uh, Ben Mize is using. 
Um, Absolutely. That, I, but... I, I, that's the song that it reminds me of, um, Jeff, which I also don't love. I'll give a brief preview. But I, <laughs> I, I, I think those I are like companion. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. those are companion pieces. So, yeah. um, and then I, yeah. also, I just, uh, the I think the lyrics to this song, I mean, a lot of great lyrics, Adam Duritz writes great, great lyrics, but I, I think this is a really, really like, um, I love this lyric, a really insightful uh, piece. And even the theme of Mercury and, and I don't know, I'm just, a, I'm a big fan of this song for sure. I, I think it's great. That's true. A pretty good analogy. Well, I have to say that I, I, I'll, that analogy will always be imprinted upon me. Uh, Eric, uh, your thoughts of uh, Mercury? I actually had a rate rate 12 and in my notes, you know, everybody talked about a great bluesy feel. That's literally what I wrote in my hmm. notes. Um, I, I wasn't too, I wasn't too familiar with the song when it, you know, first came out in a couple of years when I spun the record, you know, backwards and forwards, it doesn't, it didn't stick out to me, but it's like, as we said a million times before, it's, it's not that bad. It's just an album of great songs, but um, Zephyr, you know, alluded to, you know, the theme of the song. And I was talking to Eric, like I said, to get acclimated to the pod and meet him and stuff a couple weeks ago. And, I'm trying to get my 17 year old daughter into the crows and she kind of likes them. And it has such a great message. I wanted her to listen to it as well. And, you know, uh, she probably listened better if they changed the name to Taylor Swift, but that's the way it goes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You got to play her that version. Yeah. Well, you got to play her that version of a long December with the one in front yeah. of it. And she's going to be like, now this is good. <laughs> no, Chris, I, no, Chris, I have, and she loves it, man. She does. Nice. Yeah. All right. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Um, so that so that goes to 14, 13, 12, which what I would call clearly those were the tier five songs because um, there was then a little space separating those from the next two. So the next two um, would be kind of that tier four. I think neither of these are a surprise, actually. I bet if I had you guess what the next two are, I bet you could get it, maybe not in order. Uh, but here we go with number 11, which is one that most of us also had in the bottom five, although... Um, Eric uh, had it a little higher, Florida Eric, and then we'll get the we'll tale about this because I'll, I'll even start with him because Jeff inexplicably had it in the top three. No, it's very interesting. Had it in the top three, which is another horse dreamers blues. So, uh, Jeff, I'll start with you just because you had it as a number three. So talk about why you love this song. What? Oh, my God. How can this not be ranked like so high? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was I was wrestling whether to put this as my number one song on the album. I, I think this is one of Adam's very finest vocal performances. You know, um, if ever anyone was in doubt of about his ability to sing, I think this song just ends any debate or discussion there. Um, I, I So for that reason, I really love it. I also think that it... Um, you know, it it just again it showcases it, it's a they weren't doing this to get a hit. They were doing this because they were trying to make you know wildly experimental, interesting music. And so, to me, you have the strings here. You have the performance of the band, which is just you know really stellar. And then you have uh, the lyrics, which I think are are cool and interesting and and literate. It's based on this um, you know play. But I think the the selling point to me is Adam's vocal performance, which to me, I think prob this has to be his best vocal performance on this album, in my opinion, and maybe one of the best of his career. I think it's just an astonishing achievement um, in terms of his singing. So that's why I put it high on my list. There's my plug. No, I, <laughs> nice. I, I, I also like I, I also like the song, Jeff. In fact, in retrospect, I probably should have put it one or two spaces higher. Um, I probably couldn't go higher than that. And I, I agree with you about the singing. Now, I know Chris is probably going to mention that how it's a um, 
companion piece. It really is a companion piece, right? To Marjorie, which I still don't know a ton about, but that Marjorie's dreaming of horses and stuff. So you can talk a little bit about that. Um, I will say I, I, um, I don't have much else to say, but uh, I'll look at the lyrics as, as we move on. But I will... This is twice this has happened in my life where somebody who was not a Crows fan did a weird Crows reference, which was that um, I had a woman stay at my place uh, once out of a couple times. And as you did in the 90s and 2000s, when you visit each other's places, you go over the CD collection, maybe the movie collection if they have one, which, by the way, young kids nowadays, college kids can't do that. Right. You can't just. Uh, oh, how do we pass the time? Oh, what CDs do you have? Right. I mean, what do you say? Share. Give me your I- iPhone. That's why you collect vinyl stuff. records. That's, That's why true. we collect vinyl records. To- but. But she saw my the Recovering the Satellites album and she goes and she said, oh, I don't know a lot about this, but I had an ex-boyfriend who said he always thought of me when he listened to Another Horse Dreamer's Blues. So I found that totally random, totally interesting. And uh, Chris, I'll, I'll move. Yeah, and was she right. very good at gambling on horses? Like, I'm curious. <laughs> what the, I have no idea. There. But I just, I just love stuff when stuff like that happens, especially because of my love of the crows. But uh, Chris, I'll, I'll move to you for your oh. take. So again, I it's interesting because I I don't disagree with anything Jeff said. I think it's a super cool song, and I I like Adam's vocals. I like a lot of the 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 pieces of it. Really love um, the sax solo. I think is really good. And actually, I think the one period where they played it live after the original record was in two thousand nine when they had um, in Michael Franti's band a sax player sort of on the road with them. And it's a very again, it's it's super cool. I uh, yeah, d- just and I think. This may have indicated to me part of what I think I end up ranking these songs on when we're doing these tends to be sort of like emotional resonance. Mm. And I just don't emotionally resonate with the story of the the girl who dreams of horses. I just it doesn't. It's cool. And it just doesn't it never hit me. So I think that's probably why it sort of falls a little bit lower. But I'm with you. It's a it's a cool and interesting song. Uh, Zephyr, your thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah, this is, I mean, you know, again, they're all great. I had this one at 13. Um, you know, I like the version of Marjorie, which there's a few Nugs recordings from 94 or whatever, um, which I think obviously this song probably came from. But yeah, the, I mean, the instrumentation, the arrangement of the song, I love how it comes in with the roads, which Adam plays live too on the tour. There were some videos and stuff where you could see that. And I think it was on the Desert Life tour where they had a saxophone as well instead of the organ solo in the middle, um, which to me I thought was not cooler, but just different. And then later when they played it in 08, I think they had the trumpet on carriage and then the saxophone on this one as well. Um, so for me, this song, um, yeah, I can't really relate to the lyrics as much as other ones, but it's incredible musically. Like Jeff, you said his Adam's vocal performance is amazing on this. And the dynamics on this song, it, it's one of those songs that I've shown some people that aren't Crows fans and they go, wow, that was amazing because it's just so interesting and there's so much going on in it. And that's just what they do. And so, you know, I think it's a beautiful song. Florida Eric, your take. It is a beautiful song and it, it's kind of funny, guys. I think I made a grave error. I had it as... <laughs> I had it at number nine. I think it should be ranked higher. It just tells such a great, great story. As I've listened to the album over and over, it being the least favorite of the first three, uh, I wanted to get ready for the show, so I was listening over and over. And I almost, you know, emailed Eric and 
said, uh, hey, can I rearrange my uh, you know rankings or whatever? But it, it's, it's just such, tells such a fantastic story of this girl who uh, escapes her, her troubled life you know, the, through riding horses. And it's another world to her, and, and it's her, her sanctuary. And I think it's – I can't relate to it personally, but I think it's just fantastic and beautifully written and performed. And it's just – it's really great. It's got a, a Doors-like organ to me. You know, Raymond Zarek, you know, played organ mm. for – the you know keyboard for the doors i think a lot of that keyboard organ sounds like him to be honest so i love it great, yeah that great. that's a, a great point it does it does have that kind of um doors build and climactic uh, thing to it the one other thing i was going to say is i never knew what this song was about i'm i'm like not somebody who pays that much attention to lyrics um if if you know if somebody like adam singing hey you know i don't care sing the phone book but I always thought that this song was about a woman who was addicted to heroin. I thought that that was the yeah. you know horse's heroin and she the dreaming and the sort of psychedelic music, you know, and 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 all of the you know lyrics and stuff. I always thought it was more about that, and and you know this other part of it, um, you know, I sort of read about later. But um, it's one another one of the songs that you can sort of interpret it in different ways, and and um, it takes on different meanings too. Anyway, I, I'm glad that uh, I'm glad people do like it, <laughs> even if it didn't rank highly on, the, on everyone's list. All right. And now on to number 10, uh, which for years I kind of, well, I'll give it away. Probably I thought it was you know similar in sounding to I'm not, I'm not sleeping, but one that's kind of been slowly moving up my rankings. Uh, so two of you had it quite low. Two of us had it in the middle, and uh, Zephyr had it quite high at number five, which is one that they brought back on this tour, Children in Bloom. And I, I, the, I thought the latest tour version, I don't want to repeat what I said a couple episodes ago, I thought what is amazing. They added some extra parts to it. They kind of showcase each band member at some point. It, it's, it's a rocker, but also kind of smooth. Um, anyway, I like Children in Bloom. Uh, so, Chris, what's your take on it? Yeah, I, I actually had this one last, and I was actually kind of surprised as I was ranking it. I like almost surprised myself because I was enjoying hearing them play the song, you know, listening to the, the tapes this summer. Um, but yeah, it just, again, one that, that sort of didn't hit me the same way, um, but a very cool song. And again, kind of an interesting history that it is one of the oldest songs on the record that they um, had kind of perfected probably by the time they got in the studio. Um, yeah, I, I'll, I'll, I'll leave, I'll leave it there. Again, I was, I was, I was surprised myself, but that's, again, I think it speaks to where all of us kind of felt with this record, you know? Yeah. It's one of their more unique songs. I'll go to Jeff. Uh, and then, then the, actually the other two have it a little higher. So Jeff, uh, your take on children in bloom or any historical notes you have about that song? Yeah. I mean, just, just that same thing. I, I think, is the oldest song that actually made the album and it was one of the ones that was played a lot so when they came into the studio they were able to you know bang it out pretty quickly i think the the one thing i i noted when i was re-listening to the album is wow matt malley's bass playing on this song is just tremendous it is really really good and he's somebody who doesn't get very much credit, I think. But um, I want to oh, I, I want to give a little I, shout out to the bass playing because it's it's a tremendous. Listen to the end of the song; he is just jamming. It's great. I it's funny. I said the I think it was off, um, not on one of the podcast episodes, but when Chris and I were just talking, either before or after or, or in addition, I said the exact same thing. I thought um, 
there's one of the songs on August. Now I'm forgetting. I guess it's Ghost Train or, or Time and Time Again. But but this was the one that I thought he really uh, um, stood out, and I thought that's a great part of the song. Uh, let's go to Zephyr, who had a Children in Bloom in his top five. Or no, he stepped off for a second. So uh, Florida Eric, you had it in the uh, number eight. What did you think about this song? I did. Yeah, I think it's a, a great little song. Great lyrically. I also noticed uh, the bass playing was fantastic too, and that's a an instrument you don't usually hear a lot of, you know, stand out aside from some some of the famous rock players, you know. But um, I, like I said, I I don't have anything that stands out overall. It's just a really really solid song. So you know, I can't say anything bad about it. Zephyr, you had it ranked the highest top five children in bloom. What's your thoughts? Yeah, uh, this song to me is just a musical journey, and I lost my mind when they started playing it being I was in the second row at the LA show it was just I was it's my it was definitely my top five bucket list songs and I never thought they'd play it and they played it um, and that was amazing but to me this song is just it's full of everything it's got a a great start to the song with the keyboards kind of like round here and and Dave's guitar riff is kind of like round here and then it just kicks in super hard and I love the the melody of the vocals at the chorus and I love there's two guitar solos and I love the, the bass line after the solo. And I just love everything about this song. And they have played it differently over the years in 2009 or 10 Dave and or Emmy and Dan did like a guitar duel. And then this last tour, like Adam walked off the stage and, and I think Emmy just kept soloing, for like, gosh, it must have been like three to five minutes. I mean, Eric, you were there. It was just incredible. Yeah, no, it, it, it was great. Like, like, how great for you? If this is your bucket list song, this is not one that you'd expect that they would have brought out this tour when they've been playing more greatest hits or if maybe they're playing second tier hits or maybe Dream of Michelangelo, something a little kind of softer. But for them to bring out Children in Bloom at this stage, uh, what a treat for the, like people like you that really wanted to hear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with you. And I, as I said, I think Charlie maybe is understated in the album version, but in the live version, he added a bun- bunch of extra parts to it now. And even Dave gets into it. He rocks on that, even oh, though yeah. you know, maybe he doesn't show it as much. But uh, by the way, it, I don't know if it was for this song, but you do know that they showed you on the Jumbotron or whatever a couple times <laughs> during that and one time you got even a, a loud roar because there was some reaction you had. I don't know if it was to that song or not, but I don't know if you realized that, but you, you, where they actually showed you and you're really enthusiastic and people cheered a little bit. So, oh, wow. Um, <laughs> so, so good for you. That, um, all right. That was cool. That's cool. <laughs> Children in Bloom, number 10. So now we get into, so that, that kind of um, ends the, what I call the lower two tiers as far as our ranking goes. Now we've all kind of said, we basically love every song on recovering the sound satellites now we get to what i what i call tier three but it was really just one song that stood by itself partly because the rankings were all over the place but also the number eight was clearly more favorite and children in bloom was clearly not as um popular so this song uh me and chris had it in the middle and uh zephyr and uh, eric had it a little lower and jeff had it number two part of his suite which would be kind of crows monkey Courtney Cox, um, I'll go. Let's start with Jeff, just because he added it at number two. Then I'll sign in. Everybody hates all my choices. Um, no, I like that. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm no, kidding. it's great. Uh, um, so first of all, I I really was strongly considering putting Monkey as number one. I It's one of my very favorite Counting Crows songs. I think it's one of the best songs on this album. 
I think it's unique uh, in their catalog. I don't mm. think that they they have other songs that sound like Children in Bloom or Recovering the Satellites. Monkey to me is really a standalone song. They don't really have anything else that sounds like this in their catalog. And um, but that's that's not reason enough to love it. I think it, that itself is just such a great sounding song. Um, it was I think the first time they really did something super unique and interesting with the backup vocals, which are going all over the place and doing something mm-hmm. really like this kind of beach boys use of the backing vocals. They got into a lot more of that on like desert life and especially hard candy. You saw them using drawing upon that concept a lot more not just, you know, doing harmonies, but doing these like interesting, intricate background vocals that are going all over the place. Um, I just think it's a, the lyrics, um, I love, I think it's a beautiful song. I think it's a beautiful tribute to, you know, this woman that he's really in love with. And, um, yeah, like I said, I, I was, uh, strongly debating, um, whether or not to put this as my top song on the album. So to me, yeah, love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I guess and, I'll give uh, my take. I, I my love monkey. In fact, um, I actually listed it as one of the top five songs and maybe the first, right? Nothing on August. And then this is the only song on recovering that is kind of on my, you know, top five songs. I'd like to hear him play live. Um, I, I agree with you. I almost, maybe I kind of think it's their, one of their first takes on a pop song. I agree with you actually mm. about the backup. Mm. You actually do hear maybe a bit of early hard candy in it because it's kind of that Beatlesque, short and sweet, poppy. Um, I don't know if you heard the podcast where I said, Jeff, how weird is it that is this the first, this is the first Crow song, right? That m- references another band which would be ben folds and it's before they got two of the ex ben folds band members in the band and if you hear them play that live now or see them jim rocks the ben folds line and like basically him and um, uh, miller wink and you know nod to each other at that part um so it's really interesting yeah i i like the song it's it's grown uh grown to me through the years i don't know how much will move up i had it as number eight surprisingly uh, but, uh, yeah, Chris, I'll go to you. I had it at nine. Again, I, I, I'm i with you. I love the song. Um, I also, one of the things I really like about this song is that um, that reference to Monkey sort of floats its way into other songs. And it's part of the way, mm. because the way Adam tells these stories, it connects to different things. Obviously, most prominently Holiday in Spain, right? But that, it's it's just kind of, it, I, I love that, that the way he uses that to float through other things. And it's that story, those, those little kind of crumbs that you can kind of piece, you know, piecing his own story together, especially with the way these songs were all written at different times. Um, so that's, and again, it's a, a beautiful pop song and I'm a, a fan. All right. Uh, Florida, Eric, go to you for monkey. Uh, I, I thought it was okay. Yeah. It does kind of lend itself to the beginnings of what's on hard candy. That's kind of start of, you know, I like the, first three albums the best and after hard candy i couldn't quite get into as much as the other ones but uh i do like it it's it's a beautiful song um i like the fact that a lot of the album is you know him trying to deal with stardom and you know it's tough to deal with and depressing but here's a girl who might actually make life worth it so i kind of like that angle of it as well great zephyr your take yeah i mean i put it at 10 but honestly this is it's such a great song. It's just you're dealing with, like we keep saying, amazing songs on this album. I like what Jeff said, and this is what I think draws me to this song, is the is not call and response, but like another melody at the chorus where 
I don't know who's singing it. I guess just, you know, whoever. But there's another melody going on with the vocals under Adam's vocals at the chorus. And to me, that just drew me to this song because it's so powerful and it's so positive and it's just so catchy. I don't know. I mean, it sounds kind of cliche, but it just, to me, that's like so cool. And it definitely did, interesting, you guys said, pave the trail for a lot of the uh, backing vocals that later showed up on Hard Candy and Saturday nights and Sunday mornings and stuff. And yeah, I just think it's a really fun song. I agree. Because it's interesting. It's not in the lyrics. What I actually am, am not 100% sure I know what the backing vocals are saying in the chorus. Yeah, same. I don't. I was looking it up, trying to figure it out today. I was reading the lyrics like, is this listed on the lyrics? It's not. So I don't know what the, what they're saying. But also right, well, the Charlie's piano great. playing so good, too, on mm. this one. Always. Yeah, if somebody can help us out with that, send us an email. <laughs> Sullivan Street PC at ProtonMail.com. Please send us. Yeah, there's a couple songs with the with the backing, you know, lyrics where I'm not always 100% what they say. So, um, no, great point. Okay, well, that wraps up part one of our Recovering the Satellites Deep Dive. Be sure to check back in a couple weeks where we will continue this analysis. We're going to go into the top eight songs, according to us. Uh, Jeff, along the way, is going to give us all sorts of trivia about these songs in the album that most fans, including most of us here at Sullivan Street, don't know. And we're also going to hear from Zephry and Florida Eric a little bit at the end about some of their interactions with Adam all that and more on the next episode of Sullivan Street. Almost.